Good morning. It's Tuesday, the 26th of December, and this is Govind Raj Athiraj coming to you from Mumbai with a special edition of the Core Report. Well, we are taking a year-end break from our news reports to look back at 2023 and look ahead for 2024 across different aspects of business and the economy. Speaking about the economy today, I am in conversation with Crystal Chief Economist DK Joshi. This is a core report with Govind Raj Athiraj. 2023 was a very interesting year speaking from a macroeconomic perspective there were many events we saw inflation for example shooting up we've seen gdp numbers come back to levels which obviously we've not seen before they may of course go back again a little down but that's for a later date so overall what are the lessons and insights from 2023 that we can carry forward into 2024 what happened in 2023 that in some ways will set the stage for what could happen and will likely happen in 2024 particularly from a macroeconomic perspective for india within india india looking out and outside looking in so here is what we are trying to broadly put together my guest today to do that is uh, dk joshi chief economist at uh, rating agency crisil and i'm pleased to be joined by him here uh, dk thank you so much for joining me thank you for having me my pleasure so let's start in a very broad sense there is the internal economy there's the external economy and i would rather leave it to you to prioritize what were the most significant macroeconomic developments of 2023 which in some ways i'll try and link to or ask you to link to what could happen or set the stage for 2024 sure I think the number one event from a macro perspective is uh, the monetary policy setting. I think globally, uh, I think there is a realization now that the monetary policy needs to be more proactive, and that's more in the advanced part of the world. Uh, the emerging markets this time were more nimble. I think the central banks were more uh, proactive, and the guys who faltered were the guys whose models we used to uh, follow. so the us fed i think went consistently wrong in predicting inflation time after time and now i think uh, earlier they were expecting inflation to touch 2% which is a target by beginning of 23 now that has moved to end of 25 so what that has done is is it has induced a certain amount of caution into the central banks you went wrong in predicting the upside of inflation will you be right in predicting the downside so the monetary policy in general is at a very delicate point if you tighten too much you end up with a recession and if you tighten a little lower than that is needed then inflation becomes uh, entrenched and you can see that what the fed most recently did was it turned dovish markets they were giving very uh, hawkish commentary before that but this is because i think they need to keep adjusting to the to the changing times but the lesson there is that the central bank will have to reassess how it looks at inflation why did it miss the boat and uh, i think the the pro more proactiveness is needed from the western central banks now because they have a bigger problem at hand that's an interesting point also because what i'd like to know there is why did they miss the boat well i think it's because you have had low inflation for a very long time they seems they forgot that fiscal policy works i think the fiscal stimulus that was being injected post covid was huge and actually fiscal policy actually worked and it created huge amount of demand that is why i think the unemployment rate is also low in us i think the fiscal policy stimulus continues to feed into the economy and may continue to feed even in 2024 
but simultaneously the very high interest rates will also start uh, uh, impacting some segments so there is a general slowdown which is expected received wisdom is that it will be a soft landing but whether it will be soft or will it will be hard i think time will tell i think the past experience is not very good as far as the forecasts are concerned okay i'm i'm going to come to india in a minute but you mentioned the united states and the federal reserve and its dovish uh, stance right now so you know when we look at let's say prices of gold we look at rupee we look at oil and of course stock market flows themselves everything seems to be linked to what the federal reserve is doing or has done now this has obviously been the case somewhat over the years but one would have thought or maybe expected or hoped that we would have decoupled to some extent and that doesn't seem to be the case is that is that would you agree with that well i think as far as the economies are concerned uh, we are not decoupled in the in the cycles as far as cycles are concerned the cycles are correlated because we are more interconnected but the trend is decoupled and the monetary policy etc i think these are part of the cycle so they do impact and although if you notice what happened to the 10 year bonds the day fed turned dovish the 10 year bonds fell there was no action from rbi so it was purely external factors and then there are countries like indonesia which have raised interest rates not because their inflation is high but because us fed is keeping interest rates high and that is impacting their currency it's impacting capital flows so there is an impact of systemically important central banks in the world on emerging markets and on top of the pile is the us federal reserve having said that what we might see now in the coming year is that the emerging markets will not wait for the fed to cut rates i think some of them which had started raising interest rates much before i think the inflation start became a problem there i think they can cut rates earlier also and the quantity of rate hikes by the fed are or quantum is much much higher than what the indian central bank for instance has done it's not one to one relationship that's what i wanted to point out but directionally i think both uh, you can't ignore what the fed is doing by the way they are not it's not only about raising interest rates they are also shrinking their balance sheets if you take the debate back to 2009 10 we used to say that the fed is expanding its balance sheet so a lot of money is coming into the system dollars are flowing so if they are shrinking the balance sheet the reverse should happen so the dollar flow globally should also uh, get restricted because of quantitative tightening now right let's uh, look at india now so obviously in india we are used to higher interest rates we are used to higher inflation compared to many of these countries the interesting thing that seemed to have happened in 23 uh, and maybe 22 as well is that interest rates and inflation numbers in india almost seem to mirror the west and vice versa but if we were to put that aside how would you say india has managed its uh, interest rate environment and its inflation environment in a very broad sense from 23 well i think we've done reasonably well i would say the only problem has been food inflation if you look at fuel it is negative right now and if you look at core inflation it's also coming down uh, core is when you take uh, food and fuel out of the overall inflation basket the reason why it is coming down is one input costs are low so companies are uh, managing to protect their margins and also they are passing on some of the benefit to the consumer so that's why core inflation is low fuel inflation is low purely because i think the gas prices are controlled petrol diesel and also i think the 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 recent reduction in cooking gas created a base effect so fuel inflation became negative now food is the biggest problem and although central banks do not control food inflation through monetary policy but when the shocks become persistent as they are becoming recently i think we've seen cereals pulses spices everything is in double digits vegetables keep popping up from one time to the other 
Uh, and I think as a consequence of that, uh, because the rest of the economy is doing well, it can transmit quickly to the rest of the economy, the food inflation. So that is why central bank has to be a little cautious on the inflation side. They cannot ignore what's happening on the food front. More sort of newbie question, but can central banks do anything about food inflation in general and in specific in India? No, they can't control food inflation or even for that matter, fuel inflation. What they can do is that if they slow down the economy, then the transmission slows down. So they can only slow the transmission of the shock from food to the rest of the economy. That is how it works. But they can't bring the food inflation per se down. Right. And, and I'm going to come to overall uh, GDP and growth and so on. But when you look at the way we've managed uh, our monetary policy, when you know we've raised interest rates and we've lowered interest rates, do you feel that we are following our own trajectory or do we still see a connection with what's happening in the rest of the world right now? Yeah, we do see. I think particularly the Fed actions do have an impact, but uh, the dominant uh, role for monetary policy is domestic conditions. That is why, as I said earlier, we did not have to raise interest rates that much as the US and Europe had to raise. You look at the central bank policy, I think there's a large section on, on what's happening globally. I mean, so they do take into account what's happening globally. Uh, the domestic inflation is the primary driver of monetary policy, but on the periphery, what happens in the global economy does influence that. Right. So let's come to GDP now. So if you were to look at growth in 2023 and before we come to 2024, firstly, how would you describe it? When we look at the numbers, suppose we say, okay, GDP grew 7.6%, that obviously sounds uh, very good, but it's in relation to something else, which in turn is in relation to maybe the number that we saw in COVID. So firstly, are we out of that base effect? And to the extent that we are or not, where are we today? Well, I think if you compare the size of the economy to the pre-COVID, yeah, we are much higher than that. I think there's no doubt. But different parts have recovered differently. I think the fastest recovery has been in investment. So investment has caught up with the trend level. I mean, if there were no COVID, we would still be there as far as investments are concerned. Uh, but for other parts, I think uh, we, we may not be that lucky. As far as trade is concerned, I think uh, we are above the trend uh, because trade did very well after the pandemic. So overall, I think the economy, if I take the case that there was no pandemic and the economy would have moved in a particular uh, direction, I think it is still below the level where it would have been without the pandemic, but in some parts have recovered faster than the others. So in absolute numbers or uh, gross value added, where are we today compared to what we were pre-pandemic? I don't have the number on the top of my hat, but I can confirm that number later, but we are, we are much higher than what we were at the pre-pandemic level. But as far as the trend is trend level is concerned, we are below that. Okay. So now if you were to look at the numbers that we've been seeing most recently, to what extent is that reflecting, let's say, a much stronger economy or are we still on base effect? No, I think it's reflecting a stronger economy because if you see the components, you will see agriculture hasn't done well. I think the latest data showed 1.2%. Just for reference, in the last 10 years, the average growth in agriculture has been 4.4% per year, which is above the trend. So I think agriculture has markedly slowed down. So despite agriculture slowing, if you are doing well, that means the other parts of the economy are, are doing better. And there, I think construction and manufacturing are staging some sort of a comeback. Let's get a historical perspective on this. After the pandemic, you could not consume services because immediately after the pandemic struck, but you could consume manufactured goods, you can order them X, Y, Z. So manufacturing did well at that time. But the moment you opened the economy up and COVID was down, you rushed towards services. And now the pent-up demanded services is coming down. So manufacturing will again, again move up. And this is exactly what is reflected in the GDP data 
that we saw. So I think overall GDP numbers have surprised on the upside despite all the global uh, stress and uh, shocks that we saw and unknown events happening. I think we haven't impacted, uh, they haven't impacted us to that extent. Having said that, in the last quarter, the primary drivers have been government because they are pushing investments up and also because government consumption is also rising. Private consumption appears to be a little weak, but my sense is I think we'll see some pickup in the as the second uh, half data becomes available soon. Right. So if, if we were to look at GDP and breaking it down a little bit, uh, one is, of course, what we produce and consume within the country and the other is what we export. Now, exports are clearly steady to slowing down as are imports. Now, how does that uh, set the stage for what we are likely to see in 2024? It's a very interesting scenario that is uh, likely to play out. And there are two factors there. One is what is the expectation on global trade next year? What really struck me was that whether you look at the OECD forecast or the IMF forecast or the WTO forecast, everybody is predicting a pickup in goods exports. Goods exports did not do well in 23. They only grew by something like volume growth was 0.9%. And that is expected to grow at 3%. One of the reasons is that from services, you'll move towards uh, goods. So if you consume more goods, you will trade more goods. The catch for India is that our exposure, trade exposure has been rising to US and Europe. And US is expected to slow down next year. So how that impacts us, I think, will be a key monitorable. Second, I think, is what we are seeing in the Red Sea area. If it becomes a bigger conflict, I think the transportation costs, etc., will rise and that will create supply side issues again. I think the cost will rise and I think that does hurt trade. The other, I think, point which I've been making for last couple of quarters is that our trade exposure to Asia has slowed and this is the part of the world which is growing very well. And by the way, it's not only India which is doing well, there are other Asian countries which are domestic driven like Indonesia, Philippines, etc. They are also recording reasonably healthy growth rates. So trade is, you have to observe whether the prediction of OECD, etc. for global trade does come true or not. If it comes true, then how do we shape up vis-a-vis -vis the slowdown in, uh, in U.S.? So I think overall, I would say that a sharp slowdown uh, in, in goods trade is not expected in the coming year because of these developments. Now, a more conceptual question. Uh, to what extent will we grow as an economy or to what extent will we add growth to our economy because of exports? And conversely, do we need strong exports to really boost the economy or could we do well even if things are as they are today? Well, I think this year, if you see uh, exports, uh, it's um, minus 6% cumulative growth. So exports haven't done that well, which is telling you that domestic demand is what is what is firing growth. You need exports because I think if exports rise, I think domestic activity also picks up in accordance with that. I mean, if you are exporting more manufacturing products, you are also producing more manufacturing products. It's helping you create more jobs, etc., and it is also making you more competitive if you are able to, uh, you're providing better stuff at home also apart from exporting. So exports are a very critical part of ensuring that if your exports grow, in particularly in more complex areas, then your supply chains are becoming more efficient. I think I would say that exports is a very important part. It's not just the growth, but it has many other implications. And right now, I think the scenario is a little tougher in general for exports because countries are turning inwards. So if you were to uh, look at, let's say, some of the targets that we have as a country, $5 trillion economy or even beyond that, what is the role that exports can play, will have to play 
in helping us get that additional growth or the converse is that it's good as long as it's there but it doesn't it's not going to make a difference in the kicker well i think what goes into the demand side gdp calculation is c consumption plus i investment plus g which is government spending exports minus imports our imports are still higher than exports so it's a the trade is broadly it's it's not adding to the gdp it may be adding less at points sometimes and it may be more negative at some other points in time but as i said trade is important for many other uh, many other reasons i think uh, it's not just uh, pushing the growth up it's uh, it's doing a variety of things it's ensuring that you uh, you are becoming more efficient etc for a 5 trillion economy i think we can become a 5 trillion economy even without exports growing much more than uh, they have previously or becoming like a china which is usually what people are thinking of that, in the see that is a, it's a different environment when china was growing when east asia was growing the countries were opening up now they are setting up their own uh, industrial hubs they are promoting industrial policy whether it's the inflation act or the chips act so there is a move to move production inwards i mean and near shoring etc so all that and also tariffs are being used to discriminate against uh, your geopolitical rivals etc so all this is not a healthy scenario for india will benefit because i think uh, it's a, it's a it's trade is shifting and we might benefit a little bit from that but so far i think we haven't seen much benefit coming from supply chain shift the the benefit in asia has gone to vietnam and thailand i mean uh, more than anybody else okay so let's stay within the economy now or within within the country now so uh, there's government spending which obviously is very high uh, there is private investment which has not been so high and there is uh, private consumption so these are only the three things that i'm guessing we can talk about so tell us about how each of these three strands are looking as you look at 2024 and what could more grow more or less I think government is committed to a fiscal deficit pact and uh, the fiscal consolidation is important for three reasons. Number one is India is triple uh, B minus which is just investment grade and it has the highest debt in the peer group of triple B minus. So I think so that is one. Second I think the fiscal accounts under control also helps the central bank in inflation control. So from that angle also it's important. I think the third reason why I think uh, fiscal policy is into focus is also because you are entering the jp morgan index next year and you're subject to a little more fiscal scrutiny so i think if you put all these three things together i think you there's need to be uh, for fiscal consolidation so government has been pushing investments the i component and now it's time for the private sector to take the baton from the government issue is government cannot adhere to fiscal consolidation targets by creating infrastructure or spending in infrastructure even though it is good the way it has been doing in the last two years so it will have to slow down as far as private sector is concerned i think there are three four reasons why i think the private sector is in a position to invest one is capacity utilization in manufacturing above 76% second 76% is, is where you usually start thinking yeah, of yeah you, okay. you, yeah because it's a high second is i think the government investment itself has propped up your uh, segments like steel cement etc so there is some spillover from there then industrial policy of the government is supporting investment right now in less capital intensive sectors like electronics and pharma but going ahead possibly i think we'll see specialty steel solar panels auto i think these are next in line and then i think the balance sheet of the corporates is still quite good their leverage is low so they are in a position to borrow and uh, and expand and then india also has the opportunity to latch on to the global supply chain shifts by accelerating the process of attracting them so there it's a very 
good time to push private investors. So you have to identify what is holding it back, apart from the uncertainty which you can't control, global uncertainty. But whatever the bottlenecks are there, if you address them, I think the transition from government investment to private investment will be smoother and it will lead to more sustainable growth. So that is the investment part. Government consumption, I think you have committed expenditures on interest rates because your debt is high. You have committed expenditure on uh, subsidies, which is food subsidy, which has been extended to five years. So you'll have to focus on on revenue collections and plug as much uh, as holes you can. So what I mean is some part of government consumption expenditure is fixed, but the other part I think you can still address and at the same time raise your revenue so that it doesn't become a fiscal uh, burden. So this is the consumption. And then finally, then is the private investment part, which is the, the consumption from the households. Household consumption is got skewed. I think there is clear premiumization happening there. The consumption items of lower income classes are not doing well, but the, the upper income classes are doing well. The average size of the automobile, average price of the automobile that is being sold has become much uh, bigger. I think it's become price. And, and houses as well. I mean, affordable housing is going down. That's houses above one crore are selling more. So the consumption is not broad-based. And here, I think the only solution is, I think it's not a short-term solution, is creating better job opportunities so that people do not have to depend on food subsidy, etc. They can generate their own income over time. But that will take time. So private consumption will be a mixed bag. You will see certain elements, newer areas, newer modes of consumption, more technology-related uh, consumption, uh, digital content, all these things, I think they are also part of consumption. Unfortunately, we don't measure them well. It doesn't show up properly in GDP because the base is 11-12. I think the consumption pattern in 11-12 and today is very different. So you need to rebase your GDP calculations also. And I think that's happening pretty soon, I think. Uh, they are looking for a normal year to do that. Right. So to go to the individual now who is at the center of all of this, what's your sense? I mean, so I get the point that there is a K-shaped recovery or there was a K-shaped recovery and therefore there is K-shaped consumption today. This is not a happy state. You know, governments have to think of everyone, not, not just those who can buy higher-end cars or bigger houses or whatever. So how is this likely to pan out speaking, uh, I mean, at least from an economic point of view? See, we are coming out of a phase which has been quite disruptive. COVID itself was disruptive. It has shaken, I think, manufacturing services, depending on which phase you were in. And I think going ahead, uh, my sense is the next phase is going to be because of the changing behavior whether it is your consumption, you want to consume certain things quickly, or you don't want to give up on premium stuff, even if you can't afford it. And at the same time, even the businesses, I think, are facing, uh, you want to work from home. I mean, you hybrid model, how will it? So this, all these considerations are important for the individual and for also for the, for the corporates. But coming back to your primary question, the only way I see it is more meaningful job creation, so to say, which is a very big challenge because when you promote efficiency, I think you you become more capital intensive also at times. So how do you promote labor intensive segments is a big, big challenge. That is the reason why government has to take care of people who can't benefit from the growth process completely by providing either free food or uh, maybe health insurance. So these kind of things will, will continue. But there's always, I think, a conflict between equity and efficiency. When you are trying to push growth up, trying to push efficiency up, sometimes the equity part gets neglected. It becomes a duty of the government to ensure. The inequality, by the way, is a global phenomenon now, I think. it's uh, And technology is making it the society even more unequal because the returns to technology firms are much, much higher than they are to the rest of the economy. Right. So, 
we talked about private investment or consumers. Uh, if we were to look at it from a business point of view, how should business leaders or businesses be looking at all of this going into 2024? Well, I think they have to be very nimble given the speed with which I think technology is transforming. I think for businesses, a very critical question would be, I mean, how do you manage the office space? I mean, what proportion of people will be willing to come or not? I think all those assessments are are going into the the, the calculation of, of, of businessmen. Then I think the other thing is they have benefited a lot this year, profit margins from lower input costs, etc. So I think they have to be very mindful of where the energy price is going or for that matter, the commodity price is going. Looks like there's no much upside to it. So the profit margin issue, I think to manage that, I think they have to manage their risks better. I think they have to focus more on resilience. You need to keep cash reserves because you are in a volatile environment. I think all these considerations, they have been important for businesses. Big businesses have managed it pretty well. And I think having a good balance sheet, healthy balance sheet helps you because it does two things. I mean, one, it cushions you when there is a shock. Second, it allows you to take up more investments because you have low leverage if the opportunity is there. So it's a good situation for the mid and the large size corporates. And then other thing which I mentioned earlier, I think was the switch from services to manufacturing which we are seeing in data, if that happens, I think if your manufacturing or non-service sector do better, I think then you have to be positioned accordingly. I mean, so you so when you say the data showing a switch, I mean, what's the kind of switch that you we're seeing? You see manufacturing growth, 13%. Construction growth, extremely strong. But construction is driving manufacturing or is it... No, or both are separately measured. I think it's the value added. Now, if you move beyond that and then start looking at services, services growth, is strong, but it is slowing. I mean, the pace with which it is increasing is, is slowing. And as I said, the globally also, the goods sector is expected to do well. So it kind of ties up with that story. So this transition from high growth in services or pent-up demand-led growth in services could be towards the manufacturing goods sector. So I think the corporates will accordingly benefit or lose so, out. But at a consumer level, you're saying that people who, let's say, splurged on experiences will maybe now go back to splurging on goods. They may not splurge on goods, depends on, the, they will actually, now services will slow and the, the manufacturing uh, goods segment will will uh, will be more back in fashion, I think. Okay, and that's an important trend to look out for for yeah, 2024. You have to, uh, I'm not sure whether it will play out, but I'm drawing from what the, what the global uh, multilaterals are saying about the goods trade. And Indian data also kind of maps to that. It will be an interesting trend to watch if it plays out that way. So I asked you about, you know, how business leaders should be looking at 2024 in terms of opportunities and, and risks and so on. So obviously climate is going to play an important role here. And this, I, I'm sure, comes out even in your own interactions with businesses and companies. So how is that whole area looking like? Well, I think 2023 was a flashpoint in some sense because it's expected or rather projected to be the hottest year in recorded history. And uh, we've seen disruptions happening, I think. Uh, so you will have to focus both on mitigating and adaptation. It's, I think, mitigating is like reducing your carbon footprint. Adaptation is like what we've done for cyclones, etc. I think uh, they're coming, but they're not hitting the economy that badly or they are not killing that many people. So both these have become important considerations for businesses, for governments. Because even for a business, it's not only where you are situated. If you're situated in a climatically fragile zone, I think that has a bearing on your profits. It has a bearing on the perception. If you're sourcing your material from areas which can be disrupted by climate, again, I think you are exposing yourself to newer risks. So I think all these considerations, as this issue becomes more binding, I think these considerations will have to be addressed and companies have to start thinking ahead. 
because this is a shock. I think you don't know how, when will it strike. So you have to make yourself more resilient uh, just as you are trying to make new crops which can uh, withstand uh, heat and cold much more than the usual crops. I think similarly, businesses will also have to plan for their transition. They can't bulletproof them against climate change, but at least mitigate the risk that comes from uh, climatical disruptions. Right. And, and you are seeing many businesses, uh, you know, put a number to this and say, okay, this is the amount of resources I have to devote to. They are thinking about it now. I think even investments will become climate sensitive. I think that's the other part. I think you uh, green investments, all those things are also there very much. For a country like India, I think it has to focus more on uh, adaptation, I would say, because uh, the, the mitigation would mean, in some sense, reducing your carbon footprint, which we should be doing, but we can't do it as fast as the rich countries. I mean, so... I think making sure that you adapt to the changing climate, I think, is uh, and become more resilient is a consideration for most businesses. And they are measuring it also, I think, that how much carbon footprint you are, you are creating. Right. And sort of last question, in your own wish list of things that you would like to foster, a, let's say, more stable economy or a stable to growth economy and so on, what would it be? Well, I think there is no solution from a short term perspective health, education, these are things that you need to focus for long-term sustainable growth. And then skilling people is very, very important because there is a skill mismatch also. It's not only that people are not finding employment, some of the employees are not finding people. I think when infrastructure grows, the infra companies are finding it difficult to get people who can operate their machines, etc. I think make sure that the vocational training part, I think, gets seriously done so that people do participate. And there are areas where I think if you are talking of AI, etc., you need to focus on enough manpower in that segment as well. I mean, because it's uh, it's very different from the IT service that you were doing earlier. So global players will come to India and GCCs are already known capability centers and they'll become more attractive if you can supply the required manpower. So I think all these have to become, so you have to play according to how the global demand is playing uh, because services exports in total exports, the share is only rising in the last two decades. I think uh, it's gone up pretty significantly. It's 42% share of services exports now. So that is one part. And second is, I think there is the infra and other things which you are growing. Make sure enough manpower is available to deliver on that. Right. So you're saying uh, from your wish stroke desire for 2024, skilled workforce, I mean, that's a very generic term, but building further on skills to respond to uh, market needs, both global and Indian, is a key uh, item on your wish list. It's a key item. And then second item would be, if you want to pass the baton to the private sector, I think address their bottlenecks head-on, because this is a great opportunity. I think that I gave you four or five reasons why private sector can invest. And I think if those conditions are met, I think you could have a very sustainable investment cycle pickup. That's a good note to end on. BK Joshi, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much. That was The Core Report with me, Govindraj Ethiraj. Do stay connected with more of our coverage at The Core. You can check out our website or sign up to our newsletter for our exclusive stories, one in-depth feature a day on www.thecore.in. Do also track us on LinkedIn, where we usually post synopsis or extracts of our top stories and interviews. We would love your feedback on how we can make business more interesting and relevant, including, of course, India's vibrant manufacturing sector. So write to us at feedback at the core.in. And thank you once again for listening. <laughs>